Hello everyone, and welcome back to the History of Africa. I'm your host, Andy. Last episode, we focused on the reign of Andrea Lampoini Merina, the greatest and most successful ruler that Imerina, and really Madagascar, had yet seen. His reunification of the shattered kingdom of Imerina after decades of civil war, and his rejuvenation of the failing government and economy of his home region. In this episode, we transition into a new era of Merina and Malgasy history. Imerina is now undisputedly the most powerful kingdom on the island, but Andrea Lampoini Merina's son has even greater ambition. He will lead Imerina to become the first state in human history to seriously aim to unite the island of Madagascar. Season 4, Episode 15, Radama the Great. Here's a question which you might have not even known that you were wondering about. Where does the name Madagascar even come from? No, really, I've been using it all the time this season, referring to this awesome island in the Southeast Indian Ocean as Madagascar and its people collectively as Malgasy. But, like, where did that name even come from? If you perform a cursory Google search, the answer to this question is a straightforward, though interesting story. Apparently, the medieval Venetian explorer Marco Polo was writing about rumors he'd heard about a great island in the Indian Ocean, which he recalled as being named something like Madagascar. The common retelling goes that, in fact, Marco Polo was writing about the city of Mogadishu, Somalia, which he mistakenly believed to be an island. He then misspelled its name as Madagascar, and when later European merchants and explorers encountered an island in roughly the same ocean, they revived Polo's name for it. This is the explanation listed on Madagascar's Wikipedia page, and therefore the one that has been uncritically repeated in clickbait articles and YouTube videos all over the internet. And it's really hard to blame people for repeating the story because, well, it's fun. The idea that an entire country's name could arise from a typo for a completely different place and that everyone just ran with it is, admittedly, very amusing. But when it comes to whether or not the story is true, the answer is almost certainly not. For starters, reading Marco Polo, there's very little to indicate that he was trying to refer to Mogadishu at all, and it seems very likely that he was simply trying to describe Madagascar based on, well, hearsay from sailors. But the real nail in the coffin of this theory is the existence of the Tabula Rogeriana. This map, created by North African geographer Aladrisi about a hundred years before Marco Polo published his travels, features an archipelago in the southern Indian Ocean. This archipelago, which stretches across the entire southern Indian Ocean from southern Africa to Southeast Asia, is labeled as Al Jazeera Malay, or the Island of the Malays, a reference to the Malay-influenced cultures that spanned from Indonesia all the way to Madagascar. The name Jazeera Malay would greatly influence later European mapmakers, with one 13th century map labeling Madagascar as Melichu, for example. Therefore, the general agreement among historians of Madagascar is that rather than deriving from a typo for Mogadishu, the name Madagascar derives from a mishearing of the Arabic phrase Al Malayu Jazeera, or Island of the Malays, a reference to the locals' Indonesian heritage. Jazeera Malay became Melichu, became Madagascar, became Madagascar. Okay, Andy, that's, like, really neat and all, but what in the name of Kelly Melasa does any of this have to do with Radama? Well, I bring it up because, while the concept of Madagascar has popped up in the series before, it has only ever been as a geographical label or cultural anachronism. 
Before the rule of Radama, the idea of a Malgasy nation, or Kingdom of Madagascar, was a completely unthought-of idea. To the people who lived on the island, Madagascar was just a weird term which foreigners would sometimes use to refer to the locals, not a term which any of them would really identify with. Radama's reign, though, will give rise to a new significance of the Malgasy identity. By the end of his rule, the dream of a united Madagascar and an island-wide Malgasy identity will no longer be an impossible fantasy, but an idea on the cusp of becoming reality. Radama's rule is the beginning of a new era, the end of the kingdom of Imerina, and the rise of the kingdom of Madagascar. For such a significant figure, though, the early chapters of Radama's life are quite obscure, and are for the most part based on speculation. Among the few details we know for certain about the prince's early years are the year of his birth, 1793, and the identities of his parents, King Andre Nampoinimerina and Queen Rambo Lambasuandro. Apart from that, Radama's early life is almost entirely hidden behind the veil of time. However, we can assume, based on several of the prince's abilities that he showcased later in life, as well as his general temperament, that the younger Dama received, much like his own father, a top-notch education in the form of private tutoring. This included lessons in the strategy game of Fanarona, and, curiously, lessons in writing and literacy as well. While it's unknown when exactly he gained the skill, by the time Radama was an adult, we know that he was literate in Surabe. This Malgasy writing system is derived from the Arabic abjad and had been used to write the Malgasy language since at least the 10th century AD at the latest. While Surabe was primarily associated with Madagascar's southern tip, it had long since spread north, being used, albeit with less frequency, throughout the entire island. You might remember all the way back in our episode on Sakalav history that, apparently, Sakalav historians developed written records for their kingdom, which were then tragically lost in a fire. Those records would have, of course, been written in Surabe. We know that Rama could read and write Surabe because, on a few different occasions, he would write letters in the script throughout his life. Curiously, one of the few details we do know about Rama's childhood that I just can't resist sharing is, apparently, how he saved his parents' marriage. According to this tale, Andrea Lampoini Merina and Radama's mother got along about as well as water and oil. The two bickered constantly to the point where they decided to do something incredibly rare in Merina society get a divorce. The two separated when Radama was still a young boy, which left little Radama devastated. Now, like all the best Marina fables, this one involves someone being incredibly passive-aggressive and, of course, the unusual exploitation of farm animals. To let his father know about his discontent with the divorce, Radama waited for Andrinampoini Merina to leave home one day, after which he scooped up a baby chicken and tied it to one of the chairs inside. When Andrea Nampoini Merina came back, he found a tied-up chick peeping angrily in his home. When the king asked his son how the chick had gotten the house and why it seemed so upset, Radama simply replied, It wants its mother. The king was now made aware of how his quarrels with his wife were impacting his son, and Andrea Nampoini Merina decided to change his ways and mend his relationship with Radama's mother. Outside of this most likely apocryphal story and the assumption of a strong education, Radama is mostly absent from the historical record until his teenage years. Around 1808, Radama entered his first foray into a position of power after he was granted a position as an officer in his father's army. 
As an officer, he traveled with Andrea Lampoini Merina on one of his many, many campaigns into the Betsileo provinces. During these campaigns, in which Rama helped his father capture and annex a city from a Betsileo ruler, the young prince served with such strong distinction that it helped his father solidify a decision that he had been leaning towards for a long time, officially naming Radama as his heir apparent. While there are no details surrounding how Radama reacted to this announcement, his father's decision to name him heir would immediately begin to transform Radama's life. First and foremost, it put his life in danger. Radama had many, many older siblings who were not happy with this decision. One of Radama's older brothers was so engulfed by rage that he began plotting to assassinate Radama, and if everything went according to plan, he would do it by his own hands. Luckily for Radama, nothing went according to plan for his brother. Apparently, his brother was either very, very unlucky, or his conspiracy had been sniffed out by some of Radama's allies. Because either by coincidence or by plan, seemingly every time that his brother and a gang of assassins he'd hired went after Radama, Radama would just not be where he was supposed to be having uh, gone somewhere else a couple hours beforehand. If Radama was supposed to be in the royal palace that day, he would suddenly be in the bullpens. If he was supposed to be in the bullpens, he would suddenly be in the rice fields. And if he was supposed to be in the rice fields, guess what? He's in the royal palace. Instead, the brother changed course and changed target. He instructed one of his slaves to casually approach Andre Nampoini Merina one day before striking at him with a dagger. This newly conceived assassination plan started out decently enough. The brothers and slave servant creeped up on Andre Lampoini Merina without arising suspicion, and soon was in the perfect position to strike. However, when Andre Lampoini Merina unexpectedly turned around and asked the would-be assassin what he was doing, the man instantly folded. He gave up the knife, apologized for going along with the evil act, and immediately ratted out Radama's brother as the hirer. While Andrea Nampoini Merina didn't want to believe this fact at first, a bunch more people came out and corroborated the story, like, uh, yeah, this guy's been actively trying to kill your other son for a few weeks now. How did you not know that? Erdama's brother was soon arrested and brought before the king. While the king wished to choose mercy, his assembled advisors told him that such a light punishment was obviously unfair for multiple attempted assassinations. Had any ordinary person tried to kill himself or Erdama, the king would sentence him to death without hesitation, so it should be no different for his own son. Andre Lampoini Merina relented, and through teary eyes, sentenced Radama's brother to death. Now, to reiterate, we have no idea how Radama felt about all this stuff going on around him. But if I were to wager, I'd say he probably wasn't too happy about it. If family drama ever has you feeling PO'd, just imagine what it would be like to have your brother frequently try to murder you, then try to murder your father... And then when he failed, get executed by your father. That's a little bit too intense for your average family sitcom. However, we do know how Radama felt about what happened next. Before he would allow his son to officially succeed him as king, Andrea Lampoini Merina insisted that Radama had to get married. This was a pretty unusual requirement. Plenty of Merina kings had been unmarried at their time of coronation before. But Andrea Lampoini Merina insisted that Radama do so as a way to protect the throne in the case of new stability, as this new queen would be the backup heir. His thinking went that rival heirs would hesitate to assassinate Radama because they couldn't expect to inherit the throne after him, since, you know, Radama's wife would take it instead. As a result, Radama was married. 
After he was married, Radama would prove very unhappy with the marriage he was put into. The woman he was wed to was about 15 years his senior, a headstrong noblewoman named Ramafu. The prince and princess, each of whom were known for their strong, stubborn personalities, possessed a horrible lack of personal chemistry. According to those who actually knew the couple, the marriage was more of a cold business transaction than a relationship of any sort of love. While this was unfortunate for Radama at the moment, it wasn't a big problem yet, though it would lead to some more politically potent trouble down the road. Perhaps if he had possessed more time to lobby his father on the matter, then Radama could have convinced Andrei Lampoinimerina to undo the marriage and let the two get a divorce. But tragically, no such opportunity would arise. In 1810, Andrei Merina caught a serious illness. Knowing that his time was short, the king made no desperate attempt to save his own life, and instead dedicated his final days to ensuring a safe future for his son. With the weight of illness slowly crushing him, Andrei Lampoinimerina summoned as many elite members of society as he could to his home in Antanarifu, from the Andriana managers of Menekelje to court bureaucrats and diviners. There, the king made them all swear oaths of allegiance to Radama. Meanwhile, he ordered each of his other sons, potential pretenders to the throne, under house arrest until Radama had secured his position as the new Mpanjaka Imerina. We'll be back after a quick break. How are University of Notre Dame faculty and students working to be a force for good in the world? Listen to Notre Dame stories to find out. Through expert interviews and captivating stories, listeners gain an inside perspective on the global and domestic challenges the university is working to solve. Subscribe to Notre Dame Stories wherever you get your podcasts. Radama, who was either not in Antanarifu yet or had only recently arrived, was hurried to the Rofa of Antanarifu. There, he met his dying father and vowed to fulfill his father's lifelong hope, for the kingdom of Imerina to reach the sea. As his father's life slipped away, Radama was the new Mpanjaka Imerina. The Hasina of his country now trickled down from the heavens to him, and from there to the rest of his subjects. Despite Andrea Lampoini Merina's attempts to secure the loyalty of the nobility to his son, the early years of Radama's reign were still a period of chaos. While most of Imerina itself remained loyal, the various non-Merina people who his father had conquered, such as the Sihanaka to the north and the Betsileo to the south, each went into revolt upon hearing the news of the king's death. As a result, Radama's first years in power were spent tediously fighting a series of small wars to reassert his royal authority over about half his country. Over the next few years, Radama slowly mopped up resistance, defeating rebellious vassals one at a time. These early wars eventually came to a conclusion with the climactic campaign, the reconquest of the eastern Betsileo. Since the beginning of Radama's reign, the Betsileo of the eastern mountains had proven particularly stubborn in their resistance. While their armies proved incapable of defeating the Merina in open combat, they refused to give up the fight, and instead holed up at a town called Infiana Dian. Located at the top of a tall plateau surrounded by sheer cliffs, this town acted like an impenetrable fortress. Initially, Radama ordered his men to assault the town head-on, but attack after attack resulted in bloody failure. Instead, Radama was forced to command his soldiers to surround the hill and wait out a lengthy siege. 
as their Lama soldiers choked off the town from food and water supplies. The Betileo tapped into their town's sizable food storage. But after a few years, the storage ran dry, and famine began to set in. Many Betsileo soldiers, forced to choose between starvation and the spears and guns of the Merina below them, opted instead to take their own lives. They marched in a straight line to the top of the hill, singing a somber funeral hymn, before blindfolding themselves and leaping off the edge of a cliff. With the martyrdom of these final revolters, Radama conquered the last major force of opposition within his kingdom. While the Betsileo were far from totally defeated, and asymmetric guerrilla warfare persisted in the region for decades more, the prospect of a large, organized army of Betsileo rising up to fight against Radama was, for the meantime, no longer a realistic possibility. With the martyrdom of Infandian, Radama had restored the full stability of his kingdom. Now it was time to begin expanding it. Radama's armies continued to march south, annexing further and further territory from their Betsileo neighbors. By 1817, the entire Betsileo country was under Merina domination. Radama's main expansionary interest, though, was the one which he had inherited from his father. In order to truly secure a prosperous future for his country, the frontiers of Imerina must expand to the sea. Andre Nampoi Imerina had tried to reduce the power of middleman merchants through mercantilistic trade policies, but only through the expansion of Imerina to the ports of the Indian Ocean could his kingdom truly become a full and independent participant in international trade. And in terms of geography, the most obvious candidate for conquest was the major eastern port of Toamasina. Which means it's finally time to discuss eastern Madagascar. Compared to the Sakalav, who injected themselves into the narrative of Merina history through impressive and relentless conquest, the region of eastern Madagascar had been significantly less apparent in the main narrative of the development of the Merina state. On the other hand, this area was far from lacking in its own interesting narratives, nor was it lacking an impact on the history of its highland neighbors. If you remember way back to the start of the season, Eastern Madagascar was likely the first part of the island to receive a permanent human population, with Austronesian settlers likely arriving in this part of the island before moving inland. By the late 17th century, when Imerina itself was still in the process of solidifying into a political entity under Andrea Massina Falona, the eastern coast was also undergoing rapid economic transformation, which would itself influence and motivate political and cultural changes to follow. In the late 17th century and prior, the east coast of Madagascar had, surprisingly, been a relative economic backwater. The dense rainforest climate of the region allowed for year-round moderate wet rice cultivation, meaning that there was really no need for the locals to develop a hyper-intensive, highly regimented and organized system of wet rice cultivation as existed in Imerina. Additionally, this area's location on the opposite coast away from major mainland African ports like Sofala, Zanzibar, and Mogadishu, ensured that the region didn't develop into the island's main hub of merchandise in the same way that the major trade ports of western Madagascar did. Apart from the occasional Dutch ship seeking enslaved workers to fuel their colonies in South Africa, typically only desperate merchants in need of immediate food or repair stocked in eastern Madagascar. Despite, or more likely because of the region's status as a backwater destination, eastern Madagascar became an attractive location for an entirely different type of sailors. Pirates. 
Pirates can historically be found in any location where heavy volumes of maritime traffic pass through, and the same is true for the Indian Ocean. You might even remember that one of the first likely historical references to Malgasy people comes from a medieval Arab chronicler describing pirate raids from Malgasy, or Wakwak pirates, on the East African coast. The explosion of piracy in eastern Madagascar, though, truly began in 1692, with the arrival of a New Yorker named Adam Baldridge on the eastern coast of Madagascar. Baldridge had worked as a smuggler for a few years, sailing back and forth between New York City and various ports of call in the Caribbean, in violation of British trade regulations. This criminal lifestyle caught up to him when, during a stop in Jamaica, Baldrich murdered someone and fled the authorities. Seeking to get as far away as he could from the law, the New Yorker eventually settled on an island off the coast of eastern Madagascar known as Nosie Baraja, which the British called St. Mary's. There, Baldrich set up a small port, in which he offered repairs and trade to any ships which happened to pass by. From a combination of its isolated location, as well as the fact that it was run by, you know, a career criminal who wouldn't ask any questions, Nosie Baraja soon became the favorite port for European and Arab pirates in the southern Indian Ocean. Pirates could sail out of the island and raid prosperous trade routes between India, Southeast Asia, East Africa, and the Arabian Peninsula, and then have an obscure base where they could receive repairs, exchange stolen goods, rearm cannons, and recruit new sailors. Now, the local people of Nosie Baraja had a uh, complicated relationship with the growing population of pirates. On the one hand, the pirates were buying and selling valuable commerce. On the other, they were pirates. Most of them were drunken, violent hooligans, just as likely to pillage, raid, and murder from the locals as they were from passing merchant ships. Within just a few years of the port being established and rapidly growing, the local people decided that they had seen enough of these pirates, and arranged an attack on the port which killed Eleven. While Baldrich and the others were forced to flee and never return by this angry mob, the reputation of eastern Madagascar as a haven for piracy survived Baldrich's failed settlement. By the dawn of the 18th century, pirates were becoming an increasingly common sight in eastern Malgasy ports. While some of these new arrivals continued to behave like Baldrige, the pirates which were able to establish a lasting and meaningful presence on the island were those smart enough not to bite the hands which fed them. Pirates played multifaceted roles in the societies of eastern Madagascar. They were popular as mercenaries, merchants, and even at times, political advisors. But one of the most lasting legacy of the pirates in East Madagascar was the emergence of a new demographic of people, the children of pirates and Malgasy women. These mixed-race men and their later descendants would be broadly known as Sandmalata, or Sons of the Mixed Race, and would play an important role in Malgasy history. In one case, a mixed-race pirate named Abraham Samuel actually managed to become the king of his own petty empire on the southeastern tip of the island. And, I swear, this man's story is absolutely nuts. Perfect for a premium episode. So, if you want to learn more about Abraham Samuel, the pirate of the Caribbean turned king of southern Madagascar, or if you just want to support our program of free online history education, then you can find out more about him on our newest premium episode at patreon.com slash historyofafrica. And to those already supporting the show... A heartfelt thank you. Among the San Malata, the most significant historical figure was a guy with two names. The pirates called him Tom, while the Malgasi called him Ratsimilau. Now, I'd love to go deeper into Ratsimilau's biography and backstory because it's, well, super complex and interesting. 
but this is just a contextual blurb. So sadly, this has to get filed away under future season territory. So to dramatically oversummarize, Ratsimi Lao was San Malata, being born to an English pirate and Malgasy princess. He actually traveled around much of the world with his father, before eventually returning to Madagascar and launching a career as a political leader in the community of his birth. Eastern Madagascar at the time was divided among numerous small kingdoms, and Ratsimilao developed a reputation as a powerful warlord in his local area. Through his connection to both the pirates and, crucially, the Sakalava to his north, Ratsimilao possessed easy access to weapons supplies and experienced soldiers alike. As a result, his army quickly ascended to become the most powerful in eastern Madagascar, and he soon conquered and united the entire region. As is often the case in Madagascar, the rise of a new political entity, in this case Ratsimilao's kingdom, led to the promulgation of a new group identity on the eastern coast. The subjects of Ratsimilao became known as the Betsimi Saraka, meaning roughly the inseparable people. Ratsimilao and his Betsimisaraka kingdom dominated eastern Madagascar for the next century. Furthermore, the newfound French efforts to develop their colony in Mauritius, located to Madagascar's east, from a small ship repair station into a profitable sugar colony, was an enormous boon for the economy of the east coast. What had once been minor ports became major shipping hubs. Pirates increasingly took a career turn towards being more ordinary merchants. While the Betsimisaraka traders grew wealthy as middlemen between the Europeans and the interior of Madagascar. As economic ties between European merchants, pirates, and Betsimisaraka grew closer, so too did political and cultural ties. Newly arrived European merchants and pirates, for example, were often startled when they docked on the eastern coast of Madagascar, knowing little about the far-off, exotic land, only to be greeted by local people in English and French. These Malgasy Creoles, or Malgasy people who adopted elements of culture from European pirates alongside their own traditional culture, also practiced European dance styles, like the popular waltz, and dressed in manners which combined European and Malgasy clothing styles. Now, to be clear, the Creoles, both of mixed and Malgasy lineage, were always a minority among the Betsimisaraka population, but quickly emerged as an influential minority among the politics and business of the region. Ratsimilao's kingdom, though powerful, was never truly all that politically centralized. While local rulers pledged loyalty and vassalage to Ratsimilao's Betsimisaraka kingdom, the frequency and size of tribute payments they made was variable to say the least. So apparent was this decentralization that many historians believe that Betsimisaraka kingdom is actually a misnomer, with Betsimisaraka confederation perhaps being a more accurate description. Regardless, decentralization accelerated further after Ratsimilao's death sometime around 1750. His daughter, son, and grandson each ruled over a successively weaker kingdom, until by the year 1800, when the pretense of a unified Betsimisaraka kingdom was essentially a relic of the past. In their place, the lands of the Betsimisaraka were once again ruled by a collection of varying disparate kings and warlords. When Radama was first considering the concept of expanding his kingdom to the east coast, this was the status quo he was going up against. By the time when Radama was preparing for an invasion of the east coast, though, a new group was filling a power vacuum left by the decline of the Betsimisaraka Confederation. The empires of France and Britain will begin to compete for influence in eastern Madagascar, and run headfirst into Radama's expansionist ambitions. As worlds collide, 
Radama finds himself facing the same dilemma that faced kings and emperors across Africa and Asia throughout the 19th century. New technologies and institutions were just beginning to emerge that would alter the relationship between the Malgasy and European visitors, just as they would around the rest of the world. Join us for our next episode, as Radama's conquest of Toa Masina leads to a series of radical reforms in order to transform Imerina into a modern, industrialized power. Thank you for listening to the History of Africa podcast. If you like our show, then we would greatly appreciate if you could help support the show and our project of freely available online history education. You can do this by supporting us at patreon.com slash historyofafrica, providing us a rating or review on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or iTunes, or by sharing the podcast with anyone who you think might enjoy learning about African history. This episode is brought to you by our supporters on Patreon, including Naomi Kanakia, Ayofagbamie, Morgan Blackmore, Sarah Mpenza, Dimitri, Emmanuel Zaudi, Alexander Travis, B.B. Milliam, Conrad Schwenke, Travis Bell, Johnny Knowles, Godfrey Sebalabie, Evan Edwards, Pascal Nwakocha, Joe Maxwell, Nkechi Nwabodike, Sheyuno Lorontimain, Kwajo Amankwa, Douglas Harder, Craig Bolton, Samuel Badu, Rasan Firgiani, and Ni T, among others. Thank you all for supporting the show. It really, really, really means a lot.